It's the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast, featuring stories of royals, scandals, and true crime. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Larissa. Hey, 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 thanks for joining us. Real quick promise, please find us and follow us at Mistrigue Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We have curated content on Pinterest and Flipboard. Check out our channels on TikTok and YouTube, and if you would be so kind, like that famous prince we all know, please show us some love and rate and review us. Positive vibes only, right? But first... Champagne. Can you believe that Magawa is retiring? The Cambodian, the Cambodian rat who sniffed out over how many seven seventy-seven landmines in his career. Yeah. Hi, this is Carrie, and this is Larissa. If you uh, are catching us mid convo, these are the convos we have when we're off the show. But. Um... <laughs> <laughs> about about bomb sniffing rats who are retiring. I'm gonna show him. I want him. I want him to throw a, a tiny little party for him with a tiny little meal of so cheese. Cute. I know. Just I want to like love him. Yeah. So between 1975 and 1998, there was over four and six million landmines that were laid in the country of Cambodia, and it caused over 64,000 casualties. Cambodia, a country that suffered through one of the cruelest eras in history. In 1975, the communist Khmer Rouge regime, led by a former school teacher named Pol Pot, began to decimate the country's population through a systematic campaign of forced labor, starvation, and murder. They torture and starve us. With one can of rice, it fed 50 people. They use us non-stop. Even though we don't have any food, we have to go to work. If we don't go to work, they kill us. Approximately 1.7 million Cambodians died under Pol Pot's rule, a staggering one-fifth of the country's population. Even today, ask almost any Cambodian citizen how long the nightmare lasted, and they quickly respond, three years, eight months, 20 days. So there's this mine clearing rat that is being retired and they're hoping that he will mentor new recruits. And I wanted to bring it up for a couple of reasons. One, I read a book about Cambodia and I watched the episode of Travels with My Father with Jack Whitehall. Please welcome Jack Whitehall. I started doing stand-up when I was about 17. I'd never had the chance to have a gap year and I thought it would be funny to take my father with me. I want it to be an authentic experience. Which side of the road do you drive on? Right, left. Right what are you looking forward to most about this? I'm looking forward to us bonding. I thought you said we were staying in a hotel. Uh, I'm Jack. Uh, this is my father, Michael. No. He is very bad with foreign people. Anna, you're a steward. Thank you so much, Stuart. He said steward, not steward. Did he look like a steward? How would I know? <laughs> Where it's like the Wild West of like yeah. Asia. But just the other day, we we're talking about Princess Diana with the landmines. Yes. So I wanted you to talk about your reflections in the interview. So I just was like, oh, this is a sign. This this little rat was a sign we need to talk about, Diana. I, that's the thing. Diana did so many firsts. She had so many firsts. I was listening to a podcast 
the other day and I can't remember the name of it. Is it only the rich or rich and famous or something? Mm-hmm. Even, the, Even rich. the rich. And you know, I like those girls. They're great. They had a guest on who was, you know, comparing Princess Diana to Meghan Markle a little bit. And, and they asked, you know, why do you think Princess Diana was so special? What made her special? And I kind of did not agree with his response of, you know, she wasn't really that special. There were special things about her. She was special in the sense that she broke a lot of barriers. After doing her True Hollywood Story for E! and interviewing a lot of people, she did a lot of firsts on her own. Without the cooperation of her staff, she decided to sit by an AIDS patient when no one would. She decided to go walk through a minefield when no one would. She was kind of, she kind of went out on her own and as kind of the rogue royal at the time, because she had her own mind, she broke a lot of barriers and it wasn't a bad thing that she had her own mind. She made the monarchy a little bit more relatable and she broke those barriers to open up to, you know, the, the regular person who adored her. Yeah, I agree. I think a whole generation kind of was influenced in the covers and the, um, I remember that with the hospitals and her holding the babies and she really was the people's princess. Do you think she met Magawa the rat or was that before? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that came way after, but I'm very interested how they how they manage to get these how to train the well these like it says rats. it says they're gonna use him to um mentor. I mean, did they give him a tiny little rat <laughs> office with a little desk and sit on the opposite side and he's like, So, what's your past experience? Oh, he doesn't have a British accent, but he would have a Yeah. He would have a Cambodian accent, but anyway. Yeah, I like that. I know, but he's getting the animals version of the Georgia Cross. Oh. So that sounds like a British, like a British. Would metal. that be a tiny little? Uh, you, obviously, you don't want to pin it to his fur. No, it's going to be no. a hanging metal. It's going to be. You're making it sound like Stuart Little. Like that's all I'm picturing right now. <laughs> like Michael J. Fox. <laughs> Let's face it. Rodents rarely trigger warm, fuzzy feelings in most people. But these African giant pouch rats, being gently awoken from their cages, are called hero rats by their handlers. They have names like Harry Potter, Godiva, and Frederick. No relation. After getting sunscreened up, this rat pack of 11 animals is headed out before dawn to a former battlefield in rural Cambodia. Their task, sniff out landmines. Everyone was surprised, even me, when I heard that the rats also taking landmines. It was like something unbelievable to me. Mark Shikuru is head rat trainer in Cambodia for the Belgian non-profit Apopo. He's from Tanzania, where this species is also native, and he learned early that they have some of the most sensitive noses in the animal kingdom. Each comes out of a rigorous program in Tanzania that trains them to distinguish explosives from other scents. Each time they sniff out TNT buried in this test field, a trainer uses a clicker to make a distinct sound, and they get a treat. So, TNT smell, clicker, food. TNT smell, clicker, food. TNT smell, clicker, food. The drill can take up to 12 months before handlers are confident that when the animal scratches in place, an explosive is buried below. We have never missed anything with the rats, so we are doing good. All right. So one of the royal families I'm always intrigued by, which uh, they kind of replaced the Monaco, which, by the way, I think some some shit's going on with Princess Charlene. She has not left South Africa. She, they're blaming it on a family infection. Ooh. 
but I think there's some mental health issues or marital problems going oh, there. We got to get I, into that sister. You got to check out her new haircut. Yeah. She is going rogue. <laughs> uh, shit's going down Are over the there and her? we don't have the inquirer. No, they're in oh, Monaco, but he made her wait. He had a bunch of kids with like illegitimate. I don't, I think some stuff happened that, and w- the inquirer used to report on them all the time. Like when the one princess married the, the circus worker, the other one had the guy who cheated on her and then died in the boat accident. I mean, this is all we ever heard about was yes, the, ro- yes. the Royals of Monaco of literally like this very small little like leap on the, on the European map. But so she won't, she's down in South Africa. She's not leaving. How long has she been down there? A few weeks. Oh God. Yeah. So Spain is interesting because they have a lot of charges going on in the Royal family. Like the dad was a cheater. I think the other guy in Belgium, I think he, the King there was a cheater too. And they went to court to try to prove it, that he had an illegitimate child. Like they're all cheaters, cheater, cheater. I feel like Rainier was not a cheater. I feel like a lot of Royals are cheater, cheater, pumpkin eaters, but Rainier was not. I think he might have during they were kind of separating. He actually had a relationship with her friend after she died. There was stuff going on there. But I don't think in the beginning of the marriage they were. I just I don't think they were either. I agree with you. I always thought the British royal family were the masters and mistresses of scandal. Well, tonight they might have to hand over their crown to the Belgian royal family, who've been ordered to acknowledge a brand new princess. There won't be any official celebrating on the streets of Brussels, though, because, rather embarrassingly, the new royal is the 52-year-old love child of the former king, Albert II. Back in the 1960s, when he was a naughty prince, the supposedly happily married and deeply religious Albert took a long-term lover. Delphine Bowell was the surprise consequence of the illicit affair. For most of her life, she dutifully kept mum about her lineage until a falling out with her father changed her mind. So the king of Spain had to step down. His son takes over. The queen or the princess, whatever she is called, I'm sorry, because this is just off the cuff of speaking. So I'm not going to sound correct with some of the terminology. Mm -hmm. I'm going to kind of break it down as if we're talking about housewives. She was a journalist has some topless photos out there. Love a good story, but she's classy. Yeah. They're more, yeah, they're more, I know nowadays. Exactly. They're actually more frugal because the sister-in-law or the brother-in-law is under charges right now for, for some sort of embezzlement. The dad who's the king cheating gave his mistress like $50 million. He went over to Dubai. Now he's been like kind of in hiding or trying to stay out of the, stay out of the, yeah, exactly. Try to stay out. The Royal Palace in Madrid has seen monarchs rise and fall, and today, flee. A humiliating exit for a once popular king celebrated for easing Spain from fascism into democracy, but now disgraced. Former King Juan Carlos is being investigated in Spain and Switzerland over allegations of bribery. In a letter to his son, King Felipe VI, he said that he was leaving Spain in the face of the public repercussions that certain past events of my private life are generating. We have complete respect for what's behind the decision of the royal household. 
This is the decision to distance themselves from the allegedly questionable and reprehensible behavior by a member of the royal household. The former king's fortunes turned in 2012, a year he became unsteady on his feet and on his throne. He'd broken his hip while on a 40,000 euro elephant hunting trip in Botswana. Spaniards, mired in recession and unemployment, were less than sympathetic. His popularity plummeted further when he allegedly gifted his mistress 65 million euros. Affairs of the wallet, it was said, far less forgivable than affairs of the heart. In 2014, he announced his abdication. Aged 76, he said, with profound emotion and after deep thought, it is time to step down. Older generations of Spaniards recall a very different Juan Carlos, a nervous young man who became king after the dictator Franco died in 1975. But he soon steered the country towards democracy. And when Franco's supporters tried to stage a coup in 1981, he addressed the nation, saying Spain would not regress to the past. As for his new future, well, it's unclear where he's gone. It was thought he might have headed for the calmer waters of Estril and the house in Portugal where he grew up in exile during Spain's civil war. But there are unconfirmed reports he's in the Dominican Republic, available, his lawyers promise, if prosecutors want to speak with him. A forgotten hero of democracy who'll be remembered instead for abandoning first his throne and now his country. But I had no idea about how the Italian monarchy, what went down over there, I was completely oblivious that the male heirs were exiled. You know, like the whole thing, Mussolini, because you're actually Italian, so you might know more of this story. And there literally was these rival cousins had a claim over the throne that's but now defunct no exactly yeah. it's now defunct now so what are they fighting over well they ha- it came to fisticuffs at one point the one the royal not fisticuffs yes, fisti- i know exactly oh my <laughs> Lord. British term. Okay. exactly exactly came with blows i totally picture like jersey shore like <laughs> i was and so they had a big fight the guy ended up going into they called him like the food truck like pasta king or prince because he ended oh, up starting man. like a catering business after his claims and then I had no idea, but the royal family at one point was even an encampment, concentration camp in Austria until the war was over. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so one of the uh, one of the prince, the princes, he just died. Oh no! So the other prince now doesn't have to fisticuff with anyone, right? No, no, I had no idea about any of this. Now I feel like this is a whole new like. Well, because it's. It's defunct now, so we wouldn't really be checking on our royal radar for them. Yeah. But it's very fascinating that they were in this big war. I mean, give an Italian a reason to fight, and we're going to go to the mat, baby. Especially yeah. with family. That's what we do best. We fight with family the best. Oh, it's like good stories. So Prince, Mi- so he spent holidays with Princess Prince. I'm sorry, Prince Michael of Kent. Kent's mother was Princess Mariana of Greece, which I actually read a book about her. Her mm-hmm. and her husband were pretty interesting. And her nephew's the one that was Prince Philip who married. Um... I feel like you've read every book ever. No, no, no. I think you just like <laughs> get off the podcast and read and read and then take a little bite of dinner and then read some more. No, no, not at all. Not I think at all. You got but... reading awards in high school, right? And grade school. 
Carrie Gillen, 450 (laughs) books in one year. So they were even going through court cases in 2010 about this title stuff. God. Oh my God. That's ridiculous. Yep. Okay. He claimed to have dated Kate Moss and that, and he started I mean, strictly come dancing. Yeah. Do you remember her right. back in the days to kind of be a little messy? She was a village bicycle for a while. Wasn't she? Oh. Everyone took a spin on her. <laughs> I feel like that's a very Italian uh, saying. Oh, it's a village bicycle. Oh, come, Kate the Moss. Let me have a ride, please. So, so moving in, because this is a shorter episode for us. I don't know if you saw the movie Dick and Jane with Jim Carrey. Yes, remember that? Today we're talking with the new VP of communications at Global, (coughs) Dick Harper. How you doing, Dick? Just terrific, Sam. Thank you for asking. And so is Globodyne, by the way. Ah, now... Dick, tell me, what is the shareholder to make of the fact that Jack McAllister, your CEO, has unloaded a considerable share of his stocks? I think CEOs sell their stocks for many reasons, Sam, both professional and personal. Actually, over the past year, Jack McAllister has sold 80% of his holdings through shell companies. How do you explain that? The reasons for doing something like that would be... Oh, losing you there. (laughs) Hold on. Reasons for doing something like that would be... uh, Could be many. Uh, Both... uh... I love the actress in that. I can... Today, Leone? Yes, I love her. No more shoveling snow. Then get a goddamn snowblower, Jack. Don't go get a new career without even telling me about it. And don't, don't take Annie out of a school that she loves and don't move us out of a house we've become a family in. Don't you see? I'm talking about us finally having a life that other people envy. Oh, Jack. They already do envy us. We had talked about Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, but we briefly touched on the fact that her dad actually had worked for Enron. So it's part of our generational wealth legal dysfunction uh we thought we would close the it's kind of the loop on old liz and her pops yeah and i know it's not very exciting to hear like white collar stuff so we're just going to kind of do it a little briefly to see how far that apple fell from the tree yeah and i mean you wonder if there was some sort of like influence or mentoring going on at home and I, and I didn't realize it because Bernie Madoff recently died. And I put at the end, if you ever listen all the way through to some of our episodes, you'll hear actually like longer sound bites that Bernie Madoff's son actually had to turn him in and all that. It's just a tragedy, like what, how yeah. the two sons turned out and the guilt that they felt. Yes. The story of Wall Street swindler Bernie Madoff took a grim and tragic turn this weekend. Police found his older son, Mark, dead in his New York apartment on Saturday. Police said Mark Madoff committed suicide by hanging himself on the two-year anniversary of his father's arrest, while his own two-year-old son was in the next room. Brian Ross joins us now with much more on this story. This really is Shakespearean. It really is. Elizabeth, Mark Madoff's suicide, by the way, will not stop the legal proceedings against him, according to lawyers in the case. 
The bankruptcy trustee says Bernie Madoff's eldest son and his children received tens of millions of dollars stolen in the fraud scheme, and even in death, Mark will continue to be the target of the effort to recover the money. He timed his suicide Saturday to the two-year anniversary of his father's arrest, almost to the very hour. Police say Madoff's father-in-law found the body hanging from a pipe in his New York apartment with his two-year-old son, Nick, asleep in another room. It hurts me because that's not who he was. He must tell you something about where he was. He was, he was in a very bad place. As Bernie Madoff's secretary for 25 years, Eleanor Squillari saw Mark and his brother Andy grow up and come to work in the family business. She says she knew Mark was having a hard time with the shame of being a Madoff. Well, I always knew that Mark wore his heart on his sleeve and he wanted to be liked. I could see him thinking that his family would be better off without him, and that makes me so sad because it's not true. But when you're that depressed, you, you don't see it. It was a Shakespearean tragedy. Mark was more interested in fly fishing than Wall Street. And even when he joined the family firm, he was never part of what turned out to be the illegal side of the business. Hours before he died, he wrote his lawyer, no one wants to hear the truth. And he had to live for the last two years under the scrutiny and people alluding to the fact that he, he, he should have known or he had to have known. Well, you know what? He didn't. But the money stolen by Bernie Madoff allowed all of the family members, including Mark, to live lives of luxury. And a lawsuit filed last week alleged Mark and others in the family committed accounting fraud as company executives. Some of these people were in control or were, uh, were absolutely in a position to understand what was going on. It's not known how Bernie Madoff got the news in prison, but he and his son had not spoken in two years and the suicide may have been a message. I think Bernie got the message. Did he deserve to get that message? Well, Mark didn't deserve to die, but Bernie deserves to be where he is. I'm very angry. So Enron at one point was named Fortune Magazine's most innovative company, six years in a row, actually. It was huge. Yeah, when it created an online trading website, which is not kind of a, back then that was pretty premier, you know. Groundbreaking, like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It had taken Enron 16 years to go from about 10 billion of assets to 65 billion of assets, and took them 24 days to go bankrupt. The fatal flaw at Enron was pride, arrogance, intolerance. We can add a gazillion dollars to the bottom line. Oh, right, that sounds fantastic. Did you convert stock worth $66 million? Uh, I don't know. I netted approximately $100 million. Enron is a company that deals with everyone with absolute integrity. It's argue about my compensation, and if I step on somebody's throat on the way, that doubles it. Well, I'll stomp on the guy's throat. <laughs> the other thing about people at Enron is a lot of them were former nerds. You wanted to be the most popular guy on Wall Street, and you were going to do whatever you had to do. They sought out every loophole they could in order to profit. The rules weren't quite clear. They could bury debt, they could bury losses. An industry that was very reliable for 100 years was all of a sudden turned into a casino. 
those guys could just yank the California economy on its leash whenever they wanted to, and they did it, and they did it, and they did it. You just steal money from California to the tune of a million bucks or two a day. Can you rephrase that? Could I predict phony uh, energy prices as a result of deregulation? Yes. Could I predict that Arnold Schwarzenegger would be our governor as a result of deregulation? Oh, I didn't expect that. How exactly does Enron make its money? Accounting doesn't get that creative. I would like to know if you are on crack. This is the shredded evidence that came out of Enron. Everyone was on the bandwagon, and it can happen again. We are the good guys. We are on the side of angels. It has evolved to the corporate crime of the century. So the company was an energy trader and supplier, according to Investopedia.com. I actually know somebody who does kind of stuff like that. Five years later, Enron Finance Corporation was created and Jeffrey Skilling was at its head. And he started using a new accounting method that's based on fair value instead of actual cost, essentially the market value of the company instead of what the books are actually saying, which... So his accounting hmm. method was fraud, essentially, right? Lying. So this method of accounting is widely accepted by the industry, but can also be manipulated by logging estimated profits as actual profits, which this kind of sounds like, hmm, was there yeah. some sort of like valuation going on with Theranos? Yes, exactly. It's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting article on medium.com. I know that's usually written by you and I could write on there, but it sounded pretty legit about the psychology phenomenon affected or uh, impact of it. It's called the Sander effect. So the Enron CFO, Andy Fastow, along with the company's lawyers, accountants, and upper management signed off on all of the fraudulent reports. So the psychological phenomenon called uh, the Sander effect was at play in the company. Basically, this effect suggests that the more people who know about the wrongdoing, the less likely it is to be reported or for someone to intervene which is really interesting when you compare to Theranos, right? Yeah, because they all just think it's normal. They believe the lead. It's almost like a cult. It's like, oh, they know what they're doing. We're Mm -hmm. just going to go along with it. Yeah. Yeah. So the psychologist suggests that with the right amount of peer pressure, people will contradict what they see and experience to conform with the legal, immoral events and practices. And they use like the Holocaust as an example. Oh, Mm -hmm. God. So when Blockbuster went in the business, which I didn't even realize there was a Blockbuster. I didn't know Blockbuster (laughs) went into business with Enron. Seriously. Well, this was for streaming. They were going to do streaming, right? That's when it got really messy when they got involved with Enron Financial. So in July of 2000, Enron Broadband Services partnered with Blockbuster. And soon after the recession hit and Enron's inflation on Blockbuster's earnings on the assumptions that Blockbuster would excel in the online video on demand service, resulted in many lost investments. Basically, if Enron brought any or bought any asset, would immediately claim the project's prof projected profits, even though it hadn't made anything off of it yet, which is pretty is really bad. So it didn't know they didn't they didn't really forecast the legitimate way and run numbers. They were no. just like, yeah, this is gonna no. be something let's do this. I wish I could run my home finances like this. <laughs> So Enron had about $590 million in losses and about $690 million in debt by the end of 2000. Shareholders lost about $74 billion leading up to Enron's bankruptcy. $74 billion? Yeah. And the only thing I really remember about all this stuff, because I was pretty young at the time, 
white collar crime like this wasn't really in the forefront of my thought. And you just didn't see things, all this TV stuff, like in streaming, like what we do now. They were all found guilty, the financial and accounting firm of shredding Enron's documents. So I just remember them like doing these pseudo like things of everybody standing around, just like shred it, hurry up, get it shredded, <laughs> shred it, shred it. And Ron's executives were charged with conspiracy, insider training and securities fraud. Skilling, who eventually became the CEO of the entire Enron company, not just the finance uh, part of it, was sentenced to 17 and a half years in prison, which was later reduced to 14 years. And he was required to pay $42 million to the victims of Enron fraud. Wow. He was released in February of 2019, which I always think of Jordan Belkin, too. Uh, that song from Wolves of Wall Street. Christian Holmes, the fourth, right, was Elizabeth's mm -hmm. dad. Yep. What was he? Was he the president? No. Who was he? He was the yeah. vice president for Enron for a number of the years. So he knew about all this stuff. He had did he Enron. serve any time? I don't think so. I don't think he did. I mean, I, I think the people at the top, the conspirators kind of got the brunt of mm -hmm. the legal punishment, but I think the yes men didn't really get, they weren't really affected, were they? They did say that he did put from a very young age, put a lot of pressure on her to do extraordinary things in life to elevate their position in the world. Oh, but it kind of backfired. Mm -hmm. Maybe her child, by the way, I wonder when that baby is due. Yeah. What, what's going on with that? I don't know. I have to get an update. I know it's probably due in the fall. I know. I didn't realize that Theranos' chief um, scientist, Ian Gibbons, later committed suicide. Did you know that? I did know that. And that was a very important part that I left out because his he did all the research and she claimed it as her own. And he's like, mm, this is a little bit much. And um, we kind of duped a lot of people. I mean, I don't know why he committed suicide. I shouldn't say that. But I imagine that was very heavy on his moral compass soul, you know. Yeah, I'm looking to see right now. He's 75 years old. He's definitely older. And now he, wor he worked for several government agencies. He went on to work for government agencies. He works in the government because they're based out of here. Government agencies like USAID after, th after Enron. So no, he didn't go to jail. And he no, serves okay. as the, he's 75 years old. And he serves as the senior vice Vice President of Program Development at the Global Environmental and Technology Foundation, GETF. Sounds fake to me. Fake, fake. I'm joking. He was um, <laughs> the third ranking executive at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. So no, he didn't go to jail. Yeah. Can we come up with a really fancy name for ourselves and make it our shell company in the Caribbean? Oh, I know for real. Like the, you know, I don't know. We'd have to come, you know, something her, with. Her brother worked at Enron too, I think. He did? How much older? She was the baby baby, right? Mm -hmm. She came years after. Was she yeah, from a second a, marriage? Has to be. I mean, he was 70. He's 75 now. Uh, can you imagine being the father and knowing that your daughter's going to face all that jail time? Yeah, I know. But I just wonder how much she was mentored by her father. Well, if he's constantly pushing her to do great things, and maybe he's got that intense pressure, like a lot of the parents in in the South Bay of California. You better, you better be successful. You better be successful. Um, if she was facing all that pressure, she probably wanted to figure out any possible way to make his dreams come true. Yeah. Yep. Let's try fraud as our first stop. That would probably be my last stop, but not my first stop.
Yeah, so that's a very, very brief overview of Enron and her dad who didn't go to jail for it or anything like that. But obviously there was a certain culture there. Is her mom still alive? Yeah. I I hold out hope for the next generation, the baby coming. Maybe that will not be a scandal. I'll let you know if I see her in Alexandria because that's where she was from. Is that where she's going to have the baby at? I don't know if she's going to have it here, but this is where her family's based out of. This is where she grew up. Oh my God, you need to find that address. You need to camp out. Mm-hmm. Out front in the yard. <laughs> Stalker. You're going to come you bail have... me out of my my my, uh, my restraining order and then my Belize in prison? Yes. Please don't get captured in Belize. Mm-hmm. I don't have that much money to get you out. <laughs> Bill Cosby walked free today after the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania overturned his assault conviction, leaving his accusers stunned. Cameras captured Cosby returning to his home outside Philadelphia just hours after the ruling came out. The judges pointing to a vast violation of Cosby's due process rights in the decision. So what happened? Well, more than a decade ago, a prosecutor decided not to charge the actor. Cosby then agreed to testify in a civil case and during that admitted to giving quaaludes to a woman he was pursuing. That became key evidence in the subsequent criminal trial. The judge's ruling that should not have been used, writing, he must be discharged and any future prosecution on these particular charges must be barred. We do not dispute that the remedy is both severe and rare, but it is warranted here, indeed compelled. Hey, 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 you've already probably had an ass full of my voice already today. However, in light of the recent news that Bill Cosby became a free man, Pennsylvania's Supreme Court overturned his conviction, I thought it would be a good time to break out an old episode with Alexa and Kelsey from the Psyched podcast. At the time, we had just gotten the news that Bill Cosby had been sentenced to three to ten years in state prison for the three counts of indecent assault. So hopefully this episode still has some relevancy. I didn't even listen back to it because I I really try minimally to listen to my voice, and I don't even know how you are listening to it right now. So everything is allegedly, and hopefully there's minimal references to Sip and Shine. Uh, So please tune in next week to hear a lot more Larissa and a lot less Carrie on Misdeeds and Intrigue. Welcome back. To- I am so excited and so psyched <laughs> to have Alexa and Kelsey from the Psyched Podcast with me today. Alexa and Kelsey are from the Psyched Podcast. They are psychotherapists who combine their love of pop culture and mental health to create this podcast. In addition to analyzing both real and fictional figures from pop culture, as we do, they share some of the lesser known and more bizarre aspects of the field of psychology. Join them for entertaining conversation inspired cocktail recipes. Literally, I feel like this is everything that my girlfriends and I do on the daily. Like the reality TV people are not like we act like we are our friends and we talk shit about them. Like this is what you guys do as a podcast. It's amazing. We started the podcast because I mean, yeah, we are therapists. So obviously we like psychology and we like mental health, but we can't stop seeing human behavior through a very psychological lens. So every time we watch a movie or watch TV or read a good book or whatever, we're always asking ourselves like, okay, but why are they doing that? And is there any research to support that? And you know, how can we explain this? So we basically use our 
podcast as an excuse to research really random and bizarre things so we can understand it better while also drinking a lot and cursing among other things. And what is not a good diagnosis between friends? <laughs> Until you have diagnosed your friends or and yourselves, like, can you really say that you're friends? Probably not. Probably no. not. No. I'm sure we've all talked about each other's own pathology. I have one girlfriend that literally, she had went on lithium. Like, and she's totally like a legit professional, the whole deal. But I guess for some reason her doctor put on lithium and she literally had to give me her laptop to take it away because she went kind of like a little nuts and even to this day we're like oh just oh, blame no. it on the lithium like everything now like she's not on <laughs> everything no. in the past is like even if she wasn't on lithium we're like oh yeah blame that on the, lithium. the lithium that sounds like this as good of an excuse as you could possibly hope for mm-hmm. oh i know so i really you have a few different episodes i'm really interested in uh you have one about ketamine oh by the way to give you a little disclaimer a warning i mispronounce everything so i'm giving you that now it doesn't mean i'm dumb it just means that like i have like a a bad uh, undiagnosed speech impediment. (laughs) (laughs) So it just came out in UK Daily Mail, aka UK Daily Bible, that on Tiger King, he used to give his workers ketamine when they were not when they had a cold or whatnot and you guys actually did an episode on ketamine so i want to see if you have any little like insight or what your thoughts are on ketamine i know that's super rando and i like totally hit you with that one but so he would give his employees ketamine when they like felt sick yes isn't that bizarre? bizarre that is bizarre because what we what we learned researching that episode was that ketamine is traditionally used as a form of anesthesia so it's like a heavy sedative it's like gonna knock you out and uh, like it is now used kind of experimentally as a depression treatment but it's it's basically anesthesia so if I had a cold and someone gave me ketamine I think I would just take a nap like I wouldn't go to work (laughs) yeah I don't know how helpful that would be did you ever see the movie Old School where Will Ferrell got shot in the neck with yes! the That's what it makes yes. me. I always think of it that from <laughs> ketamine. That's how I picked for ketamine being. Yeah, I mean, he was pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other episode, which I actually did one on my show about Marilyn Monroe, is I wanted to hear what you guys thought, what your thoughts were on her. I am somebody who had daddy issues. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like when I got divorced I told my husband I'm like I'm over my daddy issues and I'm over you I, I fully embrace my daddy issues so I want to see what your thoughts were about Marilyn Monroe and and her quote-unquote potential daddy issues yeah well Marilyn Monroe poor thing she just had a lot of issues in general we so I did a two-part Marilyn Monroe's our only two-part episode so much information on her because there's there's just so much info on her but the big thing about Marilyn is that her entire childhood was just so jacked like just being repeatedly abandoned by multiple different family members and guardians and there was just literally no way for her not to to develop some very serious fears of abandonment and trust issues and interpersonal problems. So she was basically destined to just have really 
upsetting marriages and relationships and not know how to have healthy friendships with people, like all of her relationships, just work relationships, friendships, romantic relationships, everything. They were so problematic. And I mean, it really is probably because she was so terribly mistreated growing up, like repeatedly abandoned at orphanages and I mean just awful like her guardians would get tired of her and be like we're just gonna take you back to the orphanage (laughs) yeah and we're gonna just go marry you off because I need to move Uh and you can't come with us yeah it's very like bizarre yeah and I always love a good Kennedy throw throw a good Kennedy into anything and I'm like all I'm all about it (laughs) so is Alexa (laughs) me too so when I was growing up in New York Bobby Kennedy Jr., Robert Kennedy Jr. used to always speak in our cafeteria telling <gasps> us to clean up the Hudson River. Oh, what? Yeah, and at the time, I just it didn't put two and two together. Well, one last one, because I really want to get your insight on this one. You also did an episode on the movie You, but really, what do you think about women and like how the sexy stalker and serial killer like women for some reason will be like oh that's so cute he like stalks me like what like what is your insight on like how women find some of this stuff sexy it's what's so funny is that we actually had a conversation about this like two days ago because I have been rereading all the true blood books and I really love the character that plays Bill the vampire and Kelsey pointed out to me that he's actually kind of stalkery and over controlling. And like, I had no insight into this and was just like, what are you talking about? He's wonderful. So I, I don't know what it is. It's like this magic veil just comes over, over you. What do you think? Yeah. Kelsey? Well, I think, I think a lot of it has to do with how we are conditioned to perceive romance. And we're very much given this message growing up that it's very romantic when men are relentless in their pursuit of you and don't take no for an answer. And so we tend to find that very flattering for some reason. But in real life, if somebody was stalking you, you would find that terrifying and you'd be like, call the police, get the F away from me. Mm -hmm. But something about like seeing it on TV or reading it in a book and then having like a very attractive person play the character is enough for us to be like, oh, stalk me. (laughs) Never mind. Never mind. He loves me so. They couldn't even properly cast the show married at first sight because the dating pool sucks so bad here so it's like here if a guy stalked you you're like oh my god he, he actually li- no. like he likes me i'm gonna take that. i got one on the line girls step oh. back I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring him in the boat <laughs> oh no <laughs> no it was, it was pretty bad okay so you guys came on so we could talk about bill cosby but first off we usually like an icebreaker and so the game we're going to play is that we all love a good psych disorder and things like that. So giving your first impression, what you get from these people, just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. So the first one is Chandler from Friends. Quirky. I just think quirky. No, no, no actual disorders we can like label him with or anything. I don't think so. Can you think of anything? No, not really. Okay. My favorite, Carrie Bradshaw. Oh, love Carrie Bradshaw. I feel like she's just a spoiled brat. Yeah, she's kind of selfish. So I would say, so there's a difference between being high on a personality trait and then actually having a disorder. So I feel like Carrie would be 
high on narcissism, but would not fit criteria for like narcissistic personality disorder, if that makes sense. Yes, totally makes sense. I also think with her, it was, I was saying this before, like a while ago to my girlfriend, because of course we were, you know, grew up on Sex in the City. It was like our diehard. And I remember when I married my ex-husband, he was definitely Mr. Big. Like, oh my gosh, like we finally ended up together. You know what I mean? Like the whole, like how she was, like Mm -hmm. she had Aiden, but she's, you know, the whole deal. But I feel like if that was made now or once Carrie grew up, I don't think you end up with Mr. Big. Like you end up getting rid of Mr. Big. So sometimes that's the only part where I'm like a little cringy. I know I was her in that way with Mr. Big. I don't want my daughter to be that way with me. I want them to have a Mr. Big. You can have an Aiden. That's fine. Like, But you can't have a Mr. Big. I know. I feel like there are so many things about Sex in the City that even though I loved that show growing up, I feel like watching it now, it's a little cringy in a lot of ways. Yeah, it didn't age super well. Well, the only thing I think too is other than Blanche from Golden Girls, we never saw it beforehand. A Samantha character that was so sexualized or comfortable with their sexuality. So true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and that wasn't like slut shamed. And that's one thing that I was like, that I feel like was a little bit forward, but definitely sometimes Carrie's decisions, I feel like kind of set us back a little. Yes. Definitely. But it doesn't mean that I wouldn't make the same decisions because I would, but I'm judging her for making <laughs> those decisions that I made. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. I got nothing on this one. I actually almost think that Sherlock Holmes does meet the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. I like it. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. Yeah? Yeah. At least the ones, I'm thinking of the ones with Robert Downey Jr., the movies, Mm -hmm. and I could definitely see that. Completely. Yeah. He's very arrogant and like my way or the highway and... And he, he has a lot of trouble with interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, the only longstanding relationship he has is with Watson. And Watson is like just overly patient and forgiving with him, which you kind of need for somebody with narcissism. It's like you have to kind of be friends with people who are just super passive. patient and passive and yeah. willing to put up with you. I think Robert Downey Jr. plays a good role of that, too. He does. Yes. Those are fun movies. Dwight from The Office. So strange. Such a strange man. (laughs) So strange. Do you think he's strange, Alexa, in the way that's like fictional strange that people aren't actually like that? Or do you think he's strange in a way that we could potentially explain? I don't know. I feel like maybe he's strange in a way to where people are like that but maybe not to that degree I think he's a very exaggerated version of like the weird dude you normally have in your office I was about to say I've had that weird I worked in finance in the military and we used to call ourselves the land of the misfit toys (laughs) (laughs) who wanted a Charlie in the box or a train with square wheels because no matter what finance office you went to there was always really odd characters for some reason in the finance world so I feel like I've worked with this guy like over and over again he's just like a composite of the guy we always had one in our office if you isolated really specific traits from Dwight Schrute I feel like you could maybe argue that he's like on the autism Mm -hmm. spectrum yeah but only if you really isolate super specific things if you if you take Dwight as a whole there's really nobody like that not to that degree (laughs) that I've met (laughs) yeah so he's just like exaggerated version what about Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory 
Oh, we love Sheldon. Uh, We did an episode on him, actually, and we think that he has obsessive compulsive personality disorder because he just, you know, he wants everything to be his way. Um, It has to be just so you can't sit in his spot, which he's calculated to get him the most airflow. And, you know, he has all these bizarre rituals that make his life important and meaningful to him. And then we did talk about that he probably could be somewhere on the autism spectrum as well, since he's not super socially adept. I should see that. What about Elle Woods? Oh, she's just fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's privileged and very naive. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about Spock? Oh, Spock would definitely 100% be on the autism spectrum, I think. He's just so socially awkward. He li- literally has and zero emotion, doesn't know how to express emotion, and is 100% logical, I think he would be a really good example of someone on the autism spectrum. I mean, definitely a fictionalized version of it, right? Where it, like, certain characteristics of being on the spectrum would be, like, kind of dialed up to 11. Yes. But I have often heard, even though I'm not, like, a huge Trekkie. I have not watched a ton of Star Trek, but I've often heard Spock is said to be a good example of the general idea of of being on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my daughter is obsessed with um, Dr. Sean from that one show, and he's autistic, but he's a doctor. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, the the good doctor. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so she, when she was little, she was diagnosed with autism, but you would never know it now. Like she did, but she also kind of is a little different with reading like body signals and she's like and so she's watching it and she's like oh my god that's my soulmate I get get him that's so (laughs) sweet I I just think it's adorable that she you know we we have we tell all these like little fantasy stories of what it would be like if you know if that was her husband like what it would be like in the family it's really cute I was like I could I know. I was like, I could do much worse than a doctor. That's adorable. Miranda Presley from Devil Wears Prada. Oh, I love that movie. Me too. Me too. Just high-level narcissist is yeah. what I thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or maybe potentially even like low-key antisocial. There was all this, a lot of stuff coming out in like psychology today and stuff about how there's a lot of bosses that are psychopaths. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. I look at how there's more psychopaths than what we realize around us. I don't think she even makes the effort, though, to, like, pretend. <laughs> no. So, lastly, is there any celebs that you see in the media or even someone from history that you would just love to sit down and, like, really put them on the Freud couch without touching them or any, like, sexual stuff? <laughs> Like that, you know, like that typical, like, lay down on the couch and tell me your problems. Yes. You know who I and Alexa's actually done an episode on her, but who I would love to just get all of the info on is Britney Spears. Yeah, she had such a public, you know, breakdown. I'd love to kind of get her perspective on things and then also find out her opinion on basically having her dad still run her life for her. Yeah, because she's still under a conservatorship under her father. And it's actually, we have heard that it's very unusual to have a conservator for that long, especially for somebody who appears to be as like typically functioning as Britney Spears. So there's just got to be some really juicy info in there. (laughs) 
Oh, I totally agree. I feel like I love this topic, by the way. I remember when she was divorcing Kevin and everybody was so excited because they totally thought he was not worthy of Brit Brit. So <laughs> when so when when it came out, she started kind of, you know, having like that breakdown and stuff. It was so shocking. I just think even to this day, like, what is the deal? Like, what's her deal? Because it's so in a way when she was going through some of that stuff, it was so kind of Howard Hughes. She was staying at like the Beverly Hills Hotel and she was walking barefoot and going to like the food places. And it's almost like not even like that bipolarness. It was like something even weird shit. Yeah, exactly. And I and I'll share a little bit. uh, But when my my son had a lot of mental health issues in his teen years and we did a lot of hospitals like after 14 if he didn't consent I'd have to go to through the TDO process of going to court and to take away his rights the whole deal and I remember them saying like oh you can have conservatorship once he turns 18 and you need to have like all this set history and all this stuff and like we're going through and thank thank god he's like stable now I don't know what it was like it just like flipped the switch but I just remember going through that process and how detailed it is and even how long you can have it and how you have to prove it and stuff. Like this guy has to have some serious shit on her or they're keeping her like super drugged up to keep her to keep her robotic. Like there's something more there. There's got to be something there. And I think we even theorized potentially in your episode when we did it that maybe maybe Brittany even likes it like maybe she likes having her dad be her conservator because she doesn't have to worry about stuff like let's assume he does a good job of managing her finances and all of that maybe it's nice for her to just relax and spend time with her sons and do her paintings Mm -hmm. and not worry about how the bills get paid and her dance videos I, there's times now I want to cry like for my mom like I yeah. need a mom like my kids will be like I need a mom I'm like no I, <laughs> like, I don't want to look at I, these like, I can't adult I don't, yeah I don't want to deal with this mm-hmm. whole thing right now I, I would be amazing to have somebody else kind of deal with it because I'm pretty on the immature tip but I always wondered what is Kevin gonna do when his k- kids like time out of child support because you know that's all he lives off of oh yeah oh for sure like what's he gonna do like I don't think his DJing or his wife's volleyball <laughs> is gonna like pay the bills. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. That'll be interesting. So let's talk about Bill Cosby. So I am obviously much older than you guys, even though I'm probably my maturity level probably is probably a little bit below yours. Okay. <laughs> Maybe a lot, but I don't know. I remember my very first early memories of Bill Cosby was sitting at my grandmother's house in between her watching like Days of Our Lives and some other soap opera. And he would be on TV with his this marker, and the marker would make noise and sounds, and he would teach like little kids with this marker. I know, I know, there's people out there that would remember this. It was on like Nickelodeon or Channel Nine. I'm thinking because we didn't even have cable back then. But and later on, you find out he did all these albums and wow. comedy and yeah. all that. But that's not who it, he was. And then later on, he was you know Mr. Huxtable, like he was so apple pie to my generation. It, we didn't even know he was a comedian. What's interesting is that I did actually see Bill Cosby. Um, I saw one of his stand-up shows and it was very, it was very surprising to me how like, uh, you know, not rated G it was. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, it wasn't like super 
raunchy or anything, but I was just really surprised. Like, this is the man that sells me pudding pops. Like, what is happening? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, he's not Dave Chappelle, but he was not like Mr. Huxtable up on stage. I know. Yes. I just remember Bill Cosby from The Cosby Show. Like, my family sat down to watch The Cosby like every week we like watched it on it was like Thursday night and then you'd watch a different yeah. world after yes you'd watch a different world after and then it was always in syndication like it was just there was always reruns of it on every day and mm-hmm. I like always watched way too much television growing up and I there were long stretches of time in my childhood where it was like I would watch old episodes of Cosby Show and Family Matters and like a couple of other things. And when we started hearing about all these sexual abuse allegations, I was like, but he's the Jell-O guy. Like, what are you talking about? I was very confused. Yeah. It was so confusing. Like it just totally did not comport with my mental image of Bill Cosby. I'll give some quick background about Bill Cosby really quick. And this came, and if you want, you can check the show notes or whatnot. My show notes are not as beautiful as yours. You even have (laughs) great spacing and everything, but I'll just give a quick background. So he was born in Philadelphia in in 1937, which makes him 83 today. And he dropped out of the high school to join the Navy. His father was also in the Navy and he was away from home a lot. And he was the oldest son. He took responsibility when his father was away to help his mother pay the bills and put food on the table for his four brothers, which I feel like during that time, there was a lot of pressure put on teens at that time uh, to, to do things like that. And he eventually earned his high school diploma and was accepted to Temple University on an athletic scholarship, which I had no idea. He was the captain of the track and football teams in high school. Did not see him as a football player. No, that's surprising. And he started doing stand-up during college. I remember, I think they used to put a stand-up on records. And his comedian career took off, and he start, he dropped out of college. And he was the first African-American actor, or Black actor, depending on what terminology you find acceptable, to co-star in a leading network television role and was the first to win an enemy, an Emmy, not an enemy, or an enema. I thought I almost said enema. <laughs> and the Cosby show was on NBC from 1984 to 1992, which I feel like was a staple in all of our childhood. And he, and I never realized until I was an adult that he, I think he was a gynecologist on there or something like that. He was not a therapist, right? I just, oh, you're right. Oh, you yes. was an obstetrician, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Cuz I think his wife was like a therapist oh or something. Gosh. She was also She wasn't a she wasn't she an attorney? Yeah. Attorney. Yeah. yeah, she was something. She had she was some sort of professional, but I think he was an obstetrician. He was. Yeah. yeah. He regularly appeared on the Electric Company children's TV show and he eventually finished his undergrad degree and then went on to earn his PhD in education. Oh, I didn't know that either. Me neither. His son died, Enos Cosby. He was shot and killed at 1 a.m. on January 16, 1997, on the side of Interstate 405 in L.A. He had stopped to fix a flat tire, and a high teenager nearby approached him to rob him. He was also said to be the inspiration for Theo Huxtable. Do you remember Theo? Poor Theo. I do. Theo was great. In 2014, sexual assault victims of Cosby started surfacing, and all there were 60 accusers. Wow, so many. Oh, my God. I know. This was definitely some sort of fetish for him, and besides it being like it was an illness. when Because, again, this was all so secret, and he was married, and it was wholesome, and, you know, this whole reputation was – I was watching one on the story of 
Do you remember the story of the Playboy bunny that was killed by her husband in that like really brutal murder? I don't think so. I feel like I should know what that is. Only but vaguely. I don't. Her husband was no better than a pimp, basically. But he like discovered her. She was gorgeous, Dorothy Stratton. And during that those days of Dorothy Stratton, she was killed in uh, August 14th of 1980. And she was murdered by her husband. It was by a murder-suicide. It was really disgusting how it happened. But during that time period, Bill Cosby was hanging out at the, Play- at the Playboy Mansion. That's the only time when I heard, heard something for the very first time that was unwholesome about him. And the Playboy Mansion in the 80s was sleazy. Yeah, there was a lot going on there. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. I feel like you would get something just walking in the like people are worried about COVID. That would be like the original yeah. epicenter of like COVID. Did what do you guys think though? Before we move into some of the sexual assault stuff, what do you think about though? Let's say hypothetically his cheating and some of his behaviors started at the Playboy Mansion, and he probably pushed the envelope more and more, and it progressed a lot of times like with sexual offenders. You know, it starts with peeping, for instance, peeping Tom, and then you know it progresses. Sure. What do you think about his wife standing by him so hardcore? Like, do you think it's a sign of the times or the way that there was an agreement in the marriage or like, you know, there's just something about her to be so ride or die there. Like she never deviated from his side. Well, you know, it does make me think about just the power of denial because it is in your own best interest to wholeheartedly believe that your husband would never do something like that, right? Like it would not be easy for you to accept that your husband has even cheated on you, much less drugged and assaulted a woman, right? And I don't know anything about Bill Cosby's wife, so I'm not trying to make any kind of specific theory or allegation about her behavior, but I, I'm just trying to think about like what – would maybe encourage that belief that she has that he's innocent or if she doesn't believe he's innocent, what would get her to stay? And I mean, it does make me think about like money. Yeah. Money, fame, fame, opportunity that she's received from being with him. And I don't know, maybe it also makes me wonder if like maybe in her eyes, like there were too many risks in leaving him. Like maybe he would take everything and she would have nothing left or. I also wonder too if you look at like Gene Simmons and some of this because this is to me like I'm very fascinated with interpersonal relationships too not just like you know diagnosis or Mm -hmm. disorders Um, but I wonder if there's always this mentality of protecting the man in the way of like well all these women just want something from you or those girls don't mean anything I am your wife I'm special or I'm apart from them or what do you expect a man to be faithful when these women are throwing themselves at you in like their minds sure. you know it's almost like you feel lucky you get to be the the constant yeah, you have to like just like you're in a special place behavior if we're going to say, if we're going to assume that she knows that at least some of these accusations are true, then she's got to be justifying it in her head one way or another. So it could be a flat out denial of like, all these women are lying and they're just trying to destroy my husband's life for their own personal gain. Or it could be another story that she's kind of fortified in her own mind around 
exactly like something you just said of, well, no, like I'm the wife, I'm the most important, I'm the constant. These girls, they just come in and out and they're probably just mad when he won't leave me for them. You know, like they're just his like side pieces that he has fun with, but I'm the woman he comes home to. So that certainly is a plausible explanation of some of the story that you might tell yourself if you were in a situation like that. Because at the end of the day, almost any other explanation is going to be more comfortable for you psychologically than accepting that your husband is that much of a monster. Mm -hmm. Or your husband even has full culpability. It's like, did that also contribute to him? These these people in these positions of especially back then and nowadays with social media and the news outlets I feel like back then they didn't really I mean Kennedy got away with murder like you just didn't report on stuff in Hollywood the whole deal there was like this protective environment of some of these people so and you uh, you have everybody telling you around you oh my god you're so great you're so great and you know she's probably taking away some of his culpability or his responsibility too you know who's holding any who's holding him accountable for things right In 2014, sexual assault victims of Cosby started surfacing in all. There were 60 accusers. He was found guilty in 2018 of three counts of aggravated indecent assault against women from Toronto. He was sentenced to three to ten years in prison and a $25,000 fine. So let's go through the timeline. One woman alleged she was drugged and raped by Cosby twice in the 1960s. So that goes even farther back than the Playboy Mansion. Another says in 1965, he drugged her drink also, and she woke up in bed and had his shirt off and his pants unzipped. In 1966, he won his first Emmy. So I'm not sure how far you guys really go into sexual deviance or anything in in your studies and whatnot or your backgrounds. But what do you have any particular thoughts or insight on people that have used date rape drugs or things like that, that what type of drive those individuals do it's because it's not so much about the violence of the act it's almost like it's incapacitating them so when we're thinking about what kind of character traits or psychopathology might contribute to someone engaging in really violent behavior whether it's just like physically violent or sexually violent you're automatically going to think of a few different personality traits or possible disorders. So um, there's something called the dark triad, which is a, is like the intersection of three different personality traits, which are narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. And, you know, narcissism is exactly what it sounds like that just super self-obsessed, unempathetic, I'm better than everybody else kind of belief system Machiavellianism is like extreme manipulation, like really using and moving other people like chess pieces to get what you want. And then psychopathy is that um, inability to have genuine interpersonal relationships because you can experience no empathy. So other people, again, are just kind of pawns for you um, to help you get what you want. You're not going to feel strong emotional attachments to them. So the intersection of those three traits is what's called the dark triad. And some psychologists would say those three things are all describing the same kind of personality type or same behavior. And other people would say those are distinct and 
you know, a, a person can have more or less of one or two of those personality traits. But regardless, those are the three things you're really going to be looking at when you're talking about somebody who would do something like repeatedly date rape someone or repeatedly rape people, like especially 60 people or more. You're definitely talking about some dark triad shit there. Um <laughs> Or even just antisocial personality disorder, which would be the closest thing in the DSM to diagnosing someone as a psychopath. I'm very fascinated by this. It's an, it's interesting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I think we did an entire episode covering this, so it's it's a lot. It's a lot. I'm finding it very fascinating. Okay, so please definitely, as I'm going through this timeline, please, by all means, interrupt me with your professional podcast opinions because this is really good stuff i'm learning a lot in 1967 carla ferragon how would you say that ferragon ferrigno ferrigno that sounds really legit said she went on a double date with cosby and his wife and he caught her alone and kissed her and she pushed him off and ran away in 19 sadly stuff like that would happen when i first entered the military i don't want to make this all about me but i feel like that particular thing i'm kind of not surprised with people that are powerful. Yeah, I hear about that happily, happening a lot in the military. Mm-hmm. And every time I go to the VA now for appointments, they're always like, were you sexually assaulted? Because there was so much sexual assault. During oh, and, periods. It, and it still happens. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's bad. In 1969, he assaulted five more women and stars in the Fat Albert TV movie. And so then the list goes on. So he assaulted Louisa Moritz in the green room of The Tonight Show. He took a 15-year-old to the Playboy Mansion and assaulted her, which is disgusting. He bet a woman at the Playboy Mansion that if she lost a game of pinball, she had to take a pill. And she woke up on Cosby on top of her. No lie. Like, if that happened nowadays, I would totally be like, I'm not taking a pill. Like, I know, like, Abitha and all these, like, take a pill and all that stuff. But I'm so skeptical of... Oh, yeah. No way. I feel like that back then, who knows? Because I know they were really big into barbiturates and things like that. but. For sure. And like, I think now with not that women in what year did this happen? Was this like in the 80s when he was hanging out at the Playboy Mansion? Yeah, definitely. I think 70s and 80s because he was that was like his place to like hang out. And it's not like women weren't aware that they could be assaulted in the 70s or 80s. But you also have to think about context because I think that's a great example of some of a story where a lot of people would be like, well, she was really stupid for doing that. Like, don't take a pill that you don't know what it is. But you also have to think about the context of that situation. She's partying at the Playboy Mansion. Mm -hmm. Everyone's drinking. Everyone's doing coke. Everyone's taking pills. And so if you're playing this, like, friendly game with a person that you think is, is like, a nice, fun guy, and he's like, okay, if you lose, like, you have to take this, like – what do you think you're getting? Like, do you think that you're getting Molly? Do you think that you're getting a Xanax? Like, you might just think that this is like part of the fun of being at the Playboy Mansion. You're probably not assuming like, oh, if I take this, he's going to rape me. Right. Especially because he's Bill Cosby. That's a really good point. The uh, Harvey Weinstein was not the first Harvey Weinstein. Right. It goes much farther back than that. 
Uh, one time he gave a friend a Tylenol for a headache and she woke up in bed with one of Cosby's, Cosby's friends that she had turned down the night before. That one I think is interesting. And if you have any insight on this, uh, sometimes you see like the sexual deviance and all that is sometimes solitary. But this being kind of like, obviously his friend was in on it or is this, was this like a kind of a thing around his, also his, the people he hung out with? Did they did more people than just Cosby do this? You know what I mean? It wasn't him stalking at a park at night to rape somebody. But for a friend to also take advantage, it's like, oh, did other men uh, around him do this too? You know, was this a group mentality? Yeah. I mean, it, it honestly kind of reminds me of the things that have come out about like Jeffrey Epstein and all the people that supposedly have been associated with him and kind of like knew what he was doing and participated in it as well. And it kind of makes me wonder about like, how was he presenting the situation to his friends? Like, you know, if if it's Bill Cosby and he's this funny guy and it's supposed to be like, we're all doing this, like it's fun and games to like fuck with these girls. Like maybe that is just kind of like the group mentality. Like we're famous and like, that's what we're going to do because we have a right to. Yeah. It's almost like a really high level frat house, Mm -hmm. you know? I was thinking the same thing about how these girls have gotten, have been incapacitated and the guys are all like, oh, it's my turn or, or you've seen it with some of the uh, football stars and Europe and all this stuff. Well, again, it's that narcissism of like, my feelings are more important than your feelings. And it's the psychopathic trait or just the lack of empathy of you as a person don't matter. Like you are just here for my enjoyment. Mm -hmm. So if it's fun for me and my friends to fuck around with you, then great. But I never realized too how some of this stuff also has the concept of social. And I'm going kind of serious here. Normally I don't even sound this serious or I sound kind of smart right now. (laughs) But like how like the concept of like social mores and And even things like that and culturally how we put athletes or actors on these pedestals and, you know, the alpha and or the testosterone driven of you're this great athlete or you can go and do this without the repercussions or that women are objectified. I just I never thought about in that sense, too, is that how much of our current culture or mentality also plays into exasperating somebody else's deviousness or their their deficiencies of their characters how we kind of create this perfect storm for these things to happen you know it's not just enough to say it's not okay Mm -hmm. for you to do this you know and like I've had these conversations even with my daughters or like when I was in the military like mentoring younger airmen I'm like anybody taking advantage of you is wrong it's totally completely wrong but I also want you to be safe and so I need to teach you these skills to be safe even though I think it's completely wrong, sat, we, I can't teach you to put your trust in other people, you know? It's not enough just for me to say that it's wrong because we all know mm-hmm. theoretically it's wrong. Yeah. We all know it. Men would probably tell you too, but yet we still find ourselves in these situations. I just went really serious there. <laughs> I was like teaching an FLE class or something, like if I was a teacher. Um, well, I mean, it's hard to talk about Bill Cosby and his crimes without it getting kind of dark, you know? I know. And what do you think about like the fact that 
like how does it make you look back on the Cosby show like it makes me really sad oh yeah it makes me sad too I feel like I haven't I don't have cable anymore so I don't really have the means to go back and (laughs) yeah right like I don't know where the Cosby show is being syndicated anymore but I feel like that's probably a show that if I had access to it like on Netflix I would probably put it on in the background as just nostalgia from my childhood and fold my laundry while it was on in the background and now it's kind of like house of cards with kevin spacey yeah, where I can't it's like watch it the it's like you can't watch it anymore yeah. it 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 has a whole other level of grossness and whenever i see him like i watched him in baby driver or whatever and kevin spacey has a whole different turn like he was such mm-hmm. an amazing character actor and yes. it's like does he have that depth because of his demons I or know. i wonder that too you know because now every time i see him in roles it was like this creep creepy factor mm-hmm. yeah he's right here in baltimore by the way he lives with his manager right here oh, really interesting mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure there's some sort of relationship between him and his manager so everybody kind of sees him as this wholesome person and he made incredible progress in his career and for african americans in the entertainment industry and so he was sexually assaulting dozens of these women so And we kind of talked about it before, but what do you think was going on with him to be able to put on that facade in front of the cameras? And I know this might be a little redundant. And and so if you want to make any other points, this is definitely the opportunity to do it. But in seemingly not aware of like any remorse or discontent. And like we see it often nowadays where it's like these people are able to do these like facades. It's like these two different worlds that they inhabit of of you see in politics or you'll see in the entertainment industry and things like that of being able to be in front of the camera and be wholesome and all these things. And then off camera, they're completely have like these double lives. Like, do you really even think that they are even in touch with that or have responsibility or it's to them, it's not even real, you know, like how they're able to put that and compartmentalize that. Well, I think a lot of that probably does come back to if you don't, feel any sense of guilt or remorse for the things that you do, it's also not going to be on your mind, right? Like I don't feel guilty when I kill cockroaches in my bathroom. So I could kill a cockroach in my bathroom and then go about my life and I'm never going to think about it again. And it's not going to impact my behavior because it's a fucking cockroach. So if you have that attitude towards other human beings, then it's not going to really bother you so much when you show up to work to film the Cosby show or show up to, you know, a TV interview and you're just going to be yourself where you're going to crack jokes and be like this fun loving guy. And it's not really going to impact you that the night before you drugged and raped somebody, you know what I mean? So a lot of that does have to do with whatever personality traits contribute to him doing that. They do include a lack of empathy for other people. And and that is really what stands behind the human ability to not be phased by your own bad behavior. There was a news article from last year saying his wife and children hadn't visited him in prison. Do you think that's odd or an indication that they've known his true colors or that he may have possibly not necessarily sexual, but like, I mean, like not abused them, but 
of what type of dynamic maybe possibly again with this conjecture about what's going on in the family that they didn't even visit him or they is just them saying well i'm not going to acknowledge this circumstance we're just not we're going to pretend this is not going on i think there could be a number of reasons that his family may you know may have not gone to visit him in prison i think definitely if you know if they were aware of this entire time or or had some sort of inkling that all of this was going on um maybe it's just like too real for them to go and see him in prison and um you know i think if like we were talking about earlier if they were aware of this and sort of engaging in a lot of denial or justification in order to like maintain some sort of relationship with him i think at this point there's potentially too much evidence out there for them to continue to maintain that level of denial or justification. And so it may just be easier to avoid him altogether and not have to kind of face the fact that he did all these really bad things. So, you know, that could be one reason. So do you think the Trump, again, this is conjecture. We know that you're not specifically treating him or whatnot. I think, too, he's kind of representative of some of this Me Too movement and all that, you know, the Harvey Weinstein and things like that. But do you think there was trauma in his life that made him capable of this? Or do you think he learned the behavior from someone else? Or do you think it's a product of that time period in the entertainment industry with the drugs and sex and taking advantage of of women and, and whatnot? Because it was a very sexist industry versus how men were treated? I think that's a really good question. It's hard to answer because there isn't specific research to my knowledge on what does the casting couch culture of Hollywood do to you psychologically. Like to my knowledge, no one's, you know, interviewed a bunch of celebrities to try to get that information. Um, But I think that that's an interesting idea that say he had a great childhood, was kind of your average person and was just exposed to all of these really kind of seedy, gross aspects of celebrity culture. And he just kind of delved deeper and deeper into it. Is that possible? Yeah, I think maybe. But we also know that people who do develop things like antisocial personality disorder, psychopathy, dark triad traits, very, 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 very frequently have suffered abuse in their backgrounds. So they might have been physically, emotionally, or sexually abused by their parents or people they knew when they were children. They might have been abandoned by their parents. They might have had a series of different types of traumas growing up that would totally impede their own kind of interpersonal development. So we know that's true of people in general who do things like serially rape or murder other people. Bill Cosby hasn't murdered anybody, but I think, yeah. you know, you get the point. No, it's it's actually interesting. I'm kind of equating it or paralleling it. Let's say the military, right? 1997. You have a certain culture, right, that you don't see today. You know, off-color jokes, things like that, right? And you might have one person who participate in an off-color joke, but if you put them in today's environment, they would never say that or do that. You know, they were just kind of playing along, quote-unquote. But then you have somebody else who has a predisposition. It's almost like that environment, like nature versus nurture. It's like now you have the next person who has like 
trauma or predisposition to a behavior, and now that you put them in an environment where it might be acceptable or encouraged or might he might be more likely to get away with it and he might actually take it farther does that make sense like you take someone like bill cosby who might have some sort of factors in his predisposition nature he put him next to a friend who might have participated in something that was you know not good but that person stopped the behavior but he continued to take advantage and then probably got worse and worse and worse if that makes sense mm-hmm is it one? Is it the other? Is it a combination? It's yeah. always a combination. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of people who criticize women for waiting so long to blow the whistle. And what would you say who was critical of the victims? And can you talk about some of the psychological damage and difficulties that occur for women in similar situations? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, for a really long time, like you mentioned, this wasn't, there was no Me Too movement. Like women in Hollywood that this could have happened to, like nobody said anything because these are really powerful men that have a lot of influence. And so um, I think there was just like a culture of like, just shut up and move on. And also I think there is still a tendency to blame women or want to sort of like, put a reason on why this happened to you. And so I think a lot of times women don't want to come forward because they don't want to be blamed or for their, someone to suggest like, oh, well, you were dressed inappropriately or like you did this to yourself because you were too drunk. And so I think that now I think women are feeling more open to coming forward. I think that like this situation, the Harvey Weinstein situation has opened the door. Um, for women to like feel more comfortable with speaking out against really powerful people. Um, But I think that there's definitely still a lot of concern because of situations like, you know, like some of these football players and rugby players that are, have been in those situations where they've been like accused of rape. And then the, the whole town just, um, sides with the the player instead Mm, mm -hmm. oh I know well and I think it makes me think of two other things as well one is that even though we are more accustomed now to listening to women's stories of assault and you know more of us are more willing to believe them women still get accused of just like fame mongering or trying to profit off of accusing wealthy famous men of assault like that happens every single time um, a woman comes forward and says this famous man did something to me there are always going to be people who are just going to accuse her of trying to get her 15 minutes of fame and make some money how you make money off of saying that guy raped me I have no idea but there will always be those accusations those are very difficult to deal with and in very high profile cases a woman might be doxxed. She like her people might dig up her address and post it online and say, go get her, rape her again. Like these are all forms of internet assault that women do deal with when they do accuse public figures of sexual misconduct of any kind. So that would definitely scare you off of it. And then something we've talked about on our podcast quite a few times just in passing is that one of the 
very common kind of automatic mental defense mechanisms after you have been sexually assaulted is to blame yourself actively rather than the other person because it feels safer to blame yourself than to recognize that something horrible happened to you by chance. I also think too, when you're in a system like these women were to make accusations or again, it can be other organizations like military fire department, whatever, where you feel like if you report it, you are actually going to be held to, it's going to hurt you, you know, like, Mm -hmm. or if, even if you're influenced into a sexual relationship or some sort of situation where, yeah, you might've kind of went along with it, but if you didn't, this was your superior, like what else are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, hello, Monica Lewinsky. Yeah, yeah. Who's gonna who's gonna yeah. say no? And she was crucified. Mm-hmm. It's so complex when we look at people that come forward with these things, and it really is. I mean, for the amount of women that have come forward nowadays, you would never have seen that twenty years ago. Never. You didn't even know what to label it oh, as. No, and I've never. even heard women saying, "Well, now men are afraid to be around." Like the older women, some women have even said well, why are they complaining? Like we already made these efforts for them or they're being hypersensitive or again, this is not everybody. I'm just talking about a couple of people, women I've heard, which I was kind of surprised is that, you know, we've dealt with this now that they're even more like leery about us. And I already had to fight to get the room at the table. So it's kind of even weird, even within the female community of professionals. And again, they don't represent everybody. I'm not saying that at all. Like I'm very amazed watching it evolve because it's so different than what it was when I entered the workforce. And I commend the bravery of them coming out, but it wasn't the time for us to do it. So how can you fault these women in 1966 not coming forward versus what we're what we can do today? You know? Yes, exactly. Well, that was kind of a dark note. We went kind of serious there. <laughs> please, is there anything more you want to say on this topic? Or, And if not, please tell me what you have coming up on your show. Or if a new listener was going to listen to your show, what show would they start with? What episode would they start with? Oh my goodness. I think you start with whatever topic sounds the most entertaining to you. Everybody has their favorite episodes. We just recorded one on cannibalism, which I thought was super fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that should be coming out in the next few weeks. So hit us up. It's Psyched Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Psyched Podcast One or on Instagram at Psyched Podcast. And we would love to have you come listen to us. And I really hope you guys come back on again. Sure. We anytime. Would love to. Yeah. This has been great. Yeah. And I don't have like a good outro line. Well, we can use our outro line. Okay. Please, please go. Go to therapy and get your shit together. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but you see, I'm, I'm a father. And fathers are the geniuses of the house. We're the geniuses of the house because. Only a person as intelligent as we could fake such stupidity. (laughs) Think about your father. He doesn't know where anything is. You ask him to do something, he messes it up. And your mother sends you down. Will you go down and see what your father's doing before he blows the house up, please? That's a genius at work. 
because he doesn't want to do it. And he knows someone will be coming soon to stop him from doing it. Ciao, darling. Still too early to go to Tiffany's. I guess the next best thing is a drink. I will never be the woman with the perfect hair who can wear white and not spill on it. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. me again and you thought you probably had enough of my voice by now just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on instagram twitter and facebook at miss intrigue pod follow us on pinterest and flipboard where we collect featured stories from across the internet of royalty chronicles of interesting events in history and of course true crime lastly check out our youtube channel because everyone has one right that features playlists of documentaries and other related segments from our podcast topics. And if you want to hit us up, check out MissDeedsAndIntriguePodcast.com. But we don't have a complaints department, just to give you a little heads up. The podcaster or authors assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained on this podcast is an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. A reasonable amount of effort was made to deliver precise data. All views expressed by the podcast hosts or guest co-hosts are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which Carrie, Misdeeds, or Intrigue Podcast, or Larissa have been, am now, or will be affiliated. The content of this podcast is for personal, informational, and entertainment purposes only, and is not to be viewed for commercial use. Misdeeds and Intrigue Podcast respects the intellectual property of others. Any audio clips that were not generated by the podcast host or producer was pulled from the public domain, free use sites, and or from YouTube, or other authorized sites to gather information. The utmost effort was made to credit the author and or production. If at any time you feel that copyright was infringed, please email Carrie at misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com and immediate action will be taken to remove the audio clips that were present for entertainment purposes only.